Well, good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. I am not Mike Gunderson. So if you pay attention to the Park Weekly, you would have come in knowing that, uh, that you were going to be in for a treat this morning. And if you don't sign up for the Park Weekly, you're just now learning that you are going to be disappointed by having me instead of Mike Gunderson preach to you this morning. Uh, Mike came down with a sickness this week, and so I'm pinch hitting for my pinch hitter, if you will. Baseball people, you get that. Other people, don't worry about it. Um, and I am so excited to be back preaching again. I usually take the month of August off and have different people preach so that I can spend some time doing my own soul work, spend some extra time with God, kind of planning through sermon for the upcoming fall and stuff. Uh, so I was scheduled to come back next Sunday and start preaching, but I'm happy to jump in this week. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read our text for this morning. We're going to look at Psalm 8 together. Psalm chapter 8, it's on page 450 in the Pew Bible encourage you to open up a Bible and get your eyes on God's Word with me this morning. To the choir master, according to the the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whenever, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you read verse 9 with me together? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, we declare that this morning. I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at this morning, Lord Jesus. On the journey of life and faith, we're all coming from different places. And yet you are with us. We are reminded in the Psalms elsewhere that that you guide us, that you guide our steps, that you are with us in the valley of the shadow of death, and that you are leading us to green pastures and still waters. So whether we're at the mountaintop whether we're in the valley, whether we're somewhere in between and not sure if we're going to ascend the hill or descend the hill and slide into the valley this morning, Lord, you are there with each of us individually. So I ask now as well that collectively we would experience you. Not just that we would get some information about you, but that we would experience you through your living and active word. So guide us now, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. You may have a seat. There was an interesting disagreement many years ago between two thought-provoking and respected Christian leaders. A.W. Tozer was a well-known American pastor and author who famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. C.S. Lewis lived around the same time frame. He was a well-known English author and scholar. He responded to to A.W. Tozer's 
thought, and he said, I read in a periodical the other day that the most important thing is how we think about God. Here's his response. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Two great Christian thought leaders, one saying what we think about God is the most important thing about us. The other saying what God thinks about us is the most important thing about us. And while I generally don't like Christian disagreement and banter, because I'm convinced you put these two guys in the same room and they're going to find that they have a lot more agreement around this than their little quotes. And actually, they lived on different continents, right? And they're corresponding via written periodicals on different continents. I think if they're in the same room and they hash this out, they're going to come to quite a bit of agreement. But I think it's certainly a thought-provoking question. What's more important? How you think about God? What you think about God? Or how God thinks about you? What God thinks about you. I've spent a great deal of time contemplating this reality for myself over the years. And kind of, kind of going back and forth, this pendulum swing between, I just want to know God, I want to know God, i got to study his word, I want to know God, I want to think rightly about God. And then also on this other ditch, okay, God, search me and know me, try my heart. God, what do you think about me? What do I mean to you? And I've become convinced over the years that they're both right. C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer, that, that it's extremely important how we think about God, what we think about God, and it's equally as important what God thinks about us, how God thinks about us. So these two shouldn't be pitted against each other. And in fact, King David holds them together perfectly in our text today by starting with how we think about God, what we think about God, and then moving to how God thinks about us and what God thinks about us. Look at verse one with me. David starts here saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a beautiful worship refrain that King David is giving us here. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it's interesting that King David, right? He has this title of king, and his name, David. Titles and names, they're important. They mean something. They conjure up something. They, whether, good, whether it's a good thought and feeling, a, a, a bad thought and feeling, or neutral, right? A, a name and a title conjures up something. President Biden, for some of you, that conjures up something. Well, for all of us, it does. It's different. President Trump, Princess Diana, LeBron James, Aaron Rodgers, Kirk Cousins, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, right? It, it, you have thoughts and reactions to names and titles. So it's important here that David, King David, who has an important title himself and a recognizable name, he's positioning himself underneath someone greater than him. O oh Lord, our Lord, is how he begins this psalm. And you'll notice that the first Lord is capital L-O-R-D, and the second Lord is lowercase o-r-d. He's using God's name, Yahweh, and God's title, Master, and putting these two together. See, often when we think about God... Right? That's like the generic word that we're most common with in the church and in the Christian world, God. But we live in these 
diverse cities and this diverse world and with the globalization of the world and really throughout all of time, there's different cultures, different religions, different peoples who worship God, right? Or they have a God or they may have multiple gods. And so it's important for us as Christians to know who are we talking to? Who are we talking about? Are we talking about this God or that God? When you talk with a neighbor who comes from a different religious background, they may refer to God. And, and what are they thinking about God? Who is this God? All right, we need to get a little bit more specific. God is this general term and title. You can see it this way, that Lord, L-O-R-D, which David used here, is Yahweh. It's God's name, which we're going to talk about a little bit more in just a minute. Lord, it's his role. He's master. And this term can be used for other people. And in the biblical times, it was often used for other people like a boss, an employer, a king. It's a Lord, someone who's in charge. So that's a role that this God has. God, specifically his name, Yahweh. So David is saying Yahweh, he's being specific about the God that he's talking to. And then Elohim is the general title for God. It's a spiritual being. There's other spiritual beings, other heavenly beings. And you'll actually see this in verse 5. Look at verse 5. David says, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That word heavenly beings there, that's Elohim. So we're going to talk more about verse 5 when we get down there a little bit more. But what I want you to know right now, some of you already know this and some of you may not. It's important for us to learn to become specific with who our God is, what his name is, how we relate to him. He's not just a deity up in the sky among many deities. He is the deity above all deities. He is the God, capital G-O-D, above all gods, lowercase g-o-d. And so when you read God in the Bible, it's usually the word Elohim. And it's referring to God's being. He is a spiritual being. He is a heavenly being. Just like angels, just like demons, just like other heavenly beings and spiritual beings. That's God's nature. But however, God is different than the other spiritual beings. He's different than the other Elohim because he's the God above all gods. He created all the other spiritual beings. He created all the other Elohim. And so these are some categories that we need to keep in mind. And as we look at this passage, it's important that, that David here says, O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord. Are there any other Andrews in the room? Put your hand up nice and high if you are an Andrew. No, bummer. This doesn't work now. Well, if there was another Andrew in this room, if someone was to come in and say Andrew, both of us would look, right? It, it, it's, a, it's, it's a name that gets both of our attention. Or is there another pastor in the room? Yeah, there is. Kyle's right there. Ben, I think he's downstairs. Pastor Gene, good to see you. We have a couple pastors in the room. And so names and titles, right, they, they, they mean something. They can, they can also give us some generalization about who somebody is, but we need to peel back to get more specific. Which God are we talking about? Which pastor are we talking about? Which Andrew are we calling? Which pastor are we referring to? And so David here is doing that for the people of God. He's getting specific with who God is. God is Lord, Master, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause. Since I'm pinch hitting for my pinch hitter, I'm a little bit less planned than normal. Uh, so I didn't know if I was going to do this, but I'm going to pause and actually have us watch a short uh, Bible project video, which gives a great description of 
where the name Yahweh comes from. So let's take a few minutes and watch this video so we kind of understand what I'm getting at here. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the second key word here, Lord, written in all capital letters. This is the personal name of Israel's God. We first learn the meaning of this name in the story of Moses and the burning bush in the book of Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses and he commissions him to liberate the Israelites from slavery. And so Moses wonders, what if people ask the name of the God who has sent me? And so God responds, tell them Ehyeh has sent me to you. Now, that Hebrew word Echyeh means I will be. In other words, God's name means that he is the one who is and who will be. God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. This God simply is. But it will sound kind of strange for Moses to go say to the Israelites, I will be has sent me to you. Only God can say, I will be. So in the next sentence, God tells Moses the version he should say aloud, Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, he has sent me to you. Now, that word Yahweh is the ancient Hebrew form of the verb he will be. And this is the personal name of the God of Israel. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Now, here's what's interesting. Over the centuries, Israelites wanted to honor the sacred nature of this divine name. So as they read the Hebrew Bible aloud and they came to this name, they stopped saying Yahweh and instead started saying the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. Now, this practice has been continued throughout the centuries. And so later, when people started translating the Bible into English, they adopted the same practice. Instead of spelling out the divine name, they translated it as Lord, spelled in all capital letters. Okay, you got that? Good, because there's more. Ancient Jewish scribes wanted to prevent anyone from even accidentally saying this name aloud when you read the Hebrew Bible. And so they came up with a visual device to remind you to make sure you say Adonai. They took the four consonant letters of the divine name. These letters correspond to our English letters, Y-H-W-H. Then they inserted the three vowels from the word Adonai and combined these together to create an artificial hybrid word, which if you pronounced it, it would say Yahuwah, but no Israelite ever said Yahuwah. It's simply a visual reminder to say the word Adonai. Now, it gets more interesting. Much later, Christian scribes came along who didn't know that Yahuwah was an artificial word. And so they began to say it aloud and spell it in their writings. This is the word that eventually entered into English as Jehovah, it's a word many people still use today. But the main thing is the word Lord in all capital letters is an indication of the divine name. Don't confuse it with the word Lord in your English translations that's not in all capital letters. That is the actual Hebrew word Adon, which just means Lord or Master. This word can refer to people like kings or the master of a servant, even a shepherd over his sheep. And sometimes biblical authors will use this word to refer to God, like in the phrases the Lord of all the earth or the Lord of lords. But behind all of these words, Yehovah, Lord, Adonai, stands the original divine name of the God of Israel. It refers to the one who was, who is, and who forever will be. 
they do that so well and so succinct. That's much quicker than if I tried to explain to you how scribes translated this over the years. So I hope that gives you an understanding of what we're seeing here, that as David sits down and he writes this song, he composes this song, this poem, he says, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, the one who has revealed himself to his people, who has given his name. Uh, Let's flip over to a couple of these passages in Exodus. The Bible Project video mentioned one of them, but I want to see them uh, for ourselves. And so flip over to page 46 in the Pew Bible, and let's look at just a few of these so we can see God interacting with his people. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, Elohim, spiritual being, a heavenly being, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God, Elohim, said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the one who is, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now flip a page over to Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. God, again, Elohim, kind of this generic title for God's being. He is a spiritual being, a heavenly being. He is in Elohim, spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And so don't hear me saying that Christians are monotheistic in the sense of like there's multiple gods who we have to choose who to worship. We are, did I say mono? Polytheistic as in there's multiple gods who we have to choose from. We are monotheistic in, as in Yahweh is the God above all gods. He is the Elohim above all Elohims. He is the heavenly being, the spiritual being who created all other heavenly beings and spiritual beings, and they are all in submission to him. Some of them in willful submission. Others of them, like Lucifer and those who followed him, are in rebellious submission to him. And so God is continuing to reveal himself. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out of the, from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. See how God is making himself personable 
and knowable to us. He's setting himself apart from all the other spiritual beings that were created by him. Some of them, again, in rebellion to him, are deceiving people. Many of them are working for God as angels, as servants, as Hebrew tells us that the angels are ministering servants of God's people. But God is the God above all gods. Flip back to Psalm 8. David begins, O Yahweh, our master, our Lord. This is a communal song, a communal poem, a communal humbling of ourselves before a God who has a name, who is knowable and approachable and powerful and present. And David, the king, says, O Yahweh, our master, we're in this together. We are in submission. How majestic is your name in all of the earth. See, David is reflecting on the person God is and the position that God holds. This is foundational for our faith and our worship and our growth and our intimacy with God. Reflecting on the person that God is and the relationship that we have with him. And so my question for you this morning is, who is God to you? Who is, is he just some generic spiritual being up in the sky, some divine who has some power and, and you, you, you know, how do you relate to God? Who is God to you? Do you know his name? Do you use his name? Do you approach him in love? And then secondly, what position does God hold for you? David here approaches him as master. Have you given up control? Have you surrendered to Yahweh, this God above all gods, who is revealing himself to you? Even here now, if you're like, well, God's never revealed himself to me. This is how he's doing it, here and now. If you've never known that his name is Yahweh, this morning, hear his name. Hear his invitation. Hear him coming to you and opening your eyes and your ears and your heart to begin a relationship with you. And then in that, as you, as you rediscover, or maybe for the first time discover who God is in his own being, and then who God is to you, how he relates to you, what position does he hold in your life? Have you, have you started the process of learning to give up control? Where are you on that journey? Are you willing to let him be the Lord, the master of your life? To say, all that I have is yours. I'm, I'm merely a steward of the things that you have created and that you have given me. Now, here's the amazing thing that in the scriptures, God reveals him to, hit himself to us as more than just master. It's one of the most common titles, and so we have to keep this in mind, right? We are not the masters of our own fate. We are not the captains of our own destiny and journey. Yahweh is. And so that's a, a foundational position that God ought to hold in our life, one where we submit to his authority, his leadership, his leading. However, there's all these other imageries that God gives us in the scripture, like he is father, we are son and daughter. Jesus 
in the Gospel of John, he says, no longer do you call me master, but now you can call me friend. And again, you can't pit those against each other because we actually do call him master. He is Lord. But he invites us into this position where he's also our friend. He's our father. He's the lover of our soul. He says that we are the apple of his eye. He knows us deeply and intimately. So this is one of the positions among many. I think it's important here that David is reflecting on that. Oh, Yahweh, our master, our Lord. And so embrace that position this morning that you have a master, you have a Lord who you ought to submit to. And then verse 2, let's keep going. It says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Consistently throughout the scriptures, God uses the weak to shame the proud. Babies and infants? How do they have a strength to overcome an enemy and a, an avenger? Israel, God's people, are surrounded by powerful nations. And, and here David is reflecting on us that the babies and the infants who open up their mouth and, and, and proclaim God by their existence and their being in God's covenant to his people, those who stay faithful to the covenant and those who declare the covenant are the ones who will overcome. Jesus uses this psalm, the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, when Jesus on Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, says that the babies and the infants are crying out. And the, the, the religious leaders, they get mad and threatened because God is threatening their position of power. They wanted strength. They wanted power. And here, before that scene, David is reflecting on those who are willing to come before God like children. God will use throughout the generations to overcome the wicked and to establish his rule and reign here on earth. So Jesus says, as, as he comes into Jerusalem on the colt and the religious leaders get mad, Jesus says, have you never read that out of the mouth of babies and infants will, cry, will come praise? So we, grown-ups, we take our cues from that little baby that little needy noise that we hear as I preach, that's a reminder to us that that's our position with God. He's Father. He's caring. He's tending to us. We're making noise that other people can't discern, but the parent learns the child, and understands this cry means they've got a wet diaper. This cry means they're hungry. This cry means I don't know what to do. Thankfully, God knows when we don't. And so David is reminding us here to come to God as children. And as we come to God in humility, in childlike faith, and as we continue to open up our mouth and proclaim his goodness, that he is Yahweh, he is Lord and Master. He uses that simplicity to overcome the wickedness of the generations and the nations and to build a people for himself. So again, this morning, who is God to you? What position does he hold in your life? Give a little bit of thought to that. And then as we move to verse 3, we're going to kind of see this shift here from, from David looking at who God is and what position he holds in our life, kind of that A.W. Tozer comment, right? That what we think about God is the most important thing in life. And he shifts and he keeps the two together. 
He doesn't pit them against each other. He shifts now to, to talk about what God thinks about us and who we are to God. And he's going to do that starting in verse 3. He says, when I look at your heavens, so remember, David was a shepherd before he was a king, spent a lot of time outside looking up at the sky. Now, the heavens isn't necessarily in the sky like the heavens. It, it, biblically, there's this imagery that it is up in the sky, and we don't know where the new heaven and the new earth is going to be, if it's going to be reestablished on this earth or somewhere else, and there's a lot of good debate about that. I have my thoughts on it, but that doesn't matter. What David is doing here is he's going out and he's looking up and he's saying that these skies represent the heavenly, the, the power of God, where God resides and where he created from and where his throne is. It says, when I look up at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This word for man here, it's a, it's a gender neutral generic term for mankind. So women, please feel included here. It's what, what is mankind? What is humanity? What are, what are we as human beings that you, God, are mindful? That you, Yahweh, God above all gods, are mindful of us? The, the sons and daughters of man that you care for us. A couple weeks ago, I was up at my favorite place doing a camping trip with my family, and we went down to the dock and looked up at the stars at night. It was a beautiful, clear night. We got out of the city lights, right? And you can see the Milky Way. You can see all the stars. And we saw like 13 shooting stars that night. We happened to be up there during a meteor shower. It was amazing. First time my kids have seen shooting stars, and we saw 13 of them. And, and I'm sitting there looking up, and this vastness of the sky, and it, it just causes all these questions, right? Like, how big is the universe? How many galaxies are out there? What is out there? There's so much up there, and it's so beautiful, and so mind-blowing, and it makes you feel so small. And yet, intrigued. And in that feeling of smallness that you get, right? You go look at a ocean, a mountain range, the stars at night. And like, I am so small and insignificant. And that's what David comes to. And he says, what am I that you are mindful of me? And the son of man that you care for me. In all of this vastness, this bigness, this glory, this splendor, God knows you. It says that he is mindful. And, and again, David is just using this generic term for humanity so we can personalize this. Who are you? Well, by account of all that's created and nobody, but on the account that God created me as a somebody, I'm now a somebody says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. So the next question here is, who are you to God? Right? David's exploring in this passage who God is and who God is to us. And then who are you to God? You're a son or a daughter who God is mindful of. This word mindfulness 
It means to be aware of another's presence, but not just aware of another's presence, like in tune to another's presence. Parents, you know sometimes that like, it's like a kid that is like, dad, 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 dad. And you're like, you know that they're there because you can hear them, but you've got your own thing going on. And I know not all of you are parents, so, so think about this with like maybe your dog, right? Or your cat or whatever. Like they need something. You're aware of their physical presence, but you're not in the state of mind to be attuned to their needs. That's not how God is with you and me. God's not just aware of our presence. And then he's like, I've got some other things going on. There's like billions of people in this world that I'm looking after. And, you know, I'm trying to balance all the prayer requests that it would rain with all the prayer requests that it wouldn't rain. And I'm, you know, I've got a lot going on. I'm kind of busy. I hear you, your voice. I hear you needing things from me. But just hold on. Just wait. Just I don't have time or capacity for you. No, God is mindful of you. He's attuned to you. Your joys, your struggles, your pains, your missteps, your questions, your ponderings, he's attuned to them. It's like he's down on a knee looking you in the face saying, talk to me, son, talk to me, daughter. I care. And and that's what David goes on to say, right? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you you care for him? He's he's attuned to us. He's aware of us. he's, He's engaged with us. And then he's actually doing something about it. Your circumstances, the circumstances of your life, God is actively and intimately involved with. And this doesn't mean he's like a genie in a bottle that when we pray the right way, he does what we want him to do. That's not what a good parent does, right? That's not what a good boss does. That's not what a good dog owner does. That's not like, think about any relationship where there is someone who knows a little bit more and they're a little bit further along the line and the God is ultimately that, right? Like I'm not trying to, every analogy breaks down. But God knows what's going on in your life and he's tending to you. That's what David's getting here. He's he's mindful of you and he cares for you. Caring doesn't always look like pulling you out of a circumstance or a situation and plopping you in a different one. It means like being in that situation, that circumstance with you. Carrying the burden, tending your soul, listening to your voice. So who are you to God? You're a son or a daughter that God is mindful of. You're a unique soul that God cares for. He goes on. Yet you have made him, the mankind, right, a little lower than the heavenly beings, than the Elohim, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, there's a lot that goes into verse 5. Uh, we don't have time to get, in, to get into the dynamics and the minutiae of this today. I'd encourage you, there's another Bible project video on Elohim, which you could go watch that would, and angels and demons that would kind of help you to understand this. There's this interesting thing here in verse five, where you can take it a couple different ways, right? It's like, um, so what David is saying is that we, mankind, we're a little lower than Yahweh. We're, we're, We're lower than Elohim, and Elohim can be a generic term for all gods, which Yahweh is a spiritual being. He is a God. So is he saying that we're lower than God, Elohim, singular? We're lower than Yahweh? Yes, we are. Is he saying that we're lower than all the other spiritual beings, heavenly beings? 
Yes, we are. There's, there, there's scripture elsewhere that would say that human beings in our created state here and now, we are a little bit lower than the angels and the demons, that we are a different category than those beings. And, and so we're going to go to a couple passages here in the New Testament as we close up in just a minute. But before we get into that, notice the second half of verse 5 as well. So you have made him, mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Who are you to God? You are a being, the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman, created in his image and likeness, who he crowns with glory and honor. Isn't that amazing, church family? How often do you think about yourself before God and think, he has crowned me with glory and honor? And how humanizing is that? How, how uplifting is that? Like so often in our relationship with God, I feel like we're beating ourselves up and we're like, he's holy, he's holy, he's holy. Yes, amen, he is. God, your glory, your glory, your glory. Yes, amen. God, you're worthy of honor. You're worthy of honor. You're worthy of honor. Yes, amen. But what we see here in this passage is that David turns it around also and he says, God actually looks at you and I and he places a crown of glory and honor upon us because he loves us, he cares for our well-being and he honors the human person. That is God. That is our position with God. That is who God is to us. Now, on verse 5, I want to do this pretty quickly. There's, there's some interesting things going on here. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. And this passage is used in Hebrews to talk about Jesus. And again, I encourage you to watch that Bible Project video on the Elohim. It'll help some of this. But Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 says, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified elsewhere. He's going to quote Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, a little, uh, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. That little while is a qualifier that's not in Psalm 8. And so now in the New Testament, what, what's happening here is this, is this is talking about Jesus, that Jesus, he's equal with God, right? He's, he's part of the Godhead. He's part of the Elohim above all Elohims. He's part of the Yahweh being. And for a little while, he became a human being, not just a spiritual being, but he embraced flesh. He became a human being. And so for a little while, God made Jesus lower than the angels and the demons he took on flesh. So as you made him for a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for a little while, well was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned him with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I'm not going to go to the Second Corinthians passage. You can write that down on your own. We'll get that 
later. But what we're seeing here is that Jesus, like Psalm 8 is this incredible pointer to who God is, right? It's helping us to understand who God is and our position to him, what God thinks about us and our position to him. And then Jesus comes and stands in that gap. He takes on flesh. He becomes a human being, the spiritual being becoming a human being and living the life that you and I are incapable of living, dying the sinner's death in our place on our behalf. And now everything is put in subjection to him. He's the second Adam. He writes the ship. He does what the first Adam couldn't do. He does what you and I struggle and fail to do. Flip back to Psalm 8 as we close up this morning. So in the same way that everything is subjected under Jesus' feet, which we just saw in Hebrews, so now all of creation is also subjected under our feet. Like this, this second part of the question, who are you to God? We know sons and daughters who he loves, he cherishes, he's mindful of, he's attuned to, he's caring for us. What position do you hold in God's world? Well, he tells us here, verse 6 through 8. You have given him, again, this is mankind, all of us, but then Hebrews uses this to show us that Jesus is the pinnacle of mankind, all human beings. It says, you have given him, you and I, dominion over the works of your hands. God's the creator. He created all this stuff and he gave you and I dominion. What is our position in God's world? To have dominion over God's creation, to steward well God's creation. You have put all things under his feet. You and I have authority on earth to rule and have dominion. How do we do with it? The history of mankind isn't great. We use, we abuse, we take advantage, we oppress, we hurt, we harm. And so Jesus steps in. That's what Hebrews is getting at. Jesus steps in and he did what you and I are incapable of doing, what we fail to do, what we keep dropping the ball on. But yet the call remains for us in this position says, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. We are human beings created in God's image and likeness. We've been given the position to steward and care. And when we fail, when we fumble, Jesus steps in. He perfectly tended to God's creation, human beings, as a human being himself. The divine taking on flesh, walking among us. And a response to that is in verse 9. As David reflects on these things, and he didn't have the whole picture. You and I have the whole picture. Now we have the New Testament. We live under the new covenant. David reflects on this and he says, O Yahweh, our master, How majestic is your name in all the earth. So I'm going to leave you with just a couple things to think about this week. Who is God to you? How do you see him? How do you relate to him? What's your position? What's his position in your life? If you need some encouragement to understand those things, keep reading Psalm 8. And secondly, who are you to God? That matters. If you see yourself as a perpetually disobedient child, you're going to have a stunted relationship with God. Look at Psalm 8. Who are you to God? You are dearly loved. He is mindful of you. He is caring for you. What is your position in God's world? It's to steward and have dominion and to get after it. Amen?
And what happens when you fall short? You look to Jesus. The one who, as Hebrews 2 shows us, steps into this place, lives the life that we so struggle to live, died the sacrificial death that you and I deserved, and then overcame sin and death in the grave. Let me pray. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would stir our hearts with a greater affection for you as we think about who you are and what your position is in our lives. And as we think about who we are to you, Lord, I thank you that you care for us, that you're mindful of us. Lord, may we be mindful to you and may we care about the things that you care about. For your glory, our good, and the advancement of the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.